boring. Like the scene works great. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's have, no criticism of Paula yeah. Vogel. <laughs> <laughs> Choosing that scene was great. It worked yeah. wonderful. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back into this podcast. We have another exciting script, as we do every week. We are three scripts into season four, which season we, four. I think we've commented so far is just wild. So fun to be yeah. in season four of this podcast. And today we are returning to a playwright that we visited before. You know, in season four, we are running short on great, great playwrights who we've not visited. Obviously, there's lots of very, very good playwrights we haven't gotten to, and we will. But in that very highest echelon of playwrights, uh, Paula Vogel's name definitely belongs. Absolutely, yeah. What was the play that we... I, I, I should have looked it up before the show. What was the play that we, uh, we've we done of Paula Vogel's We've before? done, of course, How I Learned to Drive. Yes, one that of, was it. One of my favorite plays of all time. Despite the disturbing <laughs> yeah. nature of the content, the 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 prowess and the power of that script is enormous. And I, I was I was excited to come to this script, which we're talking about today, because this was one I knew nothing about. I've read many of Paula Vogel's scripts. This is a newer one that I had just not checked out yet. And it absolutely shook my expectations and flipped them upside down between what I thought I was going to read and the story that I was just absolutely caught up in. I just loved this script. Yeah, it's a really great script about a really specific moment in, in history and in theater history where we are talking about Indecent by Paula Vogel this week. That's right. Indecent is, it's a play about the making and producing of a play. It's a play about theater in so many ways. So that, that's going to be a lot of fun, I think, for us to talk about. Yeah, but before we jump into the conversation, we did just want to take a second and thank all of you who have found your way over to our Patreon. Uh, uh, no Script Podcast has a Patreon over that away. For those of you who have been uh, a part of the show for a long time, you know that uh, we love doing this show. It's a labor of love for us, but alas, it is not free. We incur some costs around the show, both for hosting and for the cost of scripts and just uh, time involved with the show. It, it takes quite a bit to put this show on. So thank you to everyone who has gone and supported the show over on Patreon. If you would like to support the show as well, whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, head over to patreon.com slash podcast and you can find a bunch of different tiers of membership for as low as $1 you can support the show. And though it sounds like a small amount, that $1 amount helps us out enormously and ensures our kind of longevity and, and, and ability to continue working on this show. So if you have a second, head on over to, over to patreon.com slash podcast and we will see you over there. That's right. And, and the folks that have already become patrons are so awesome, of course, and together, through all of the little amounts that they're able to give monthly, we've covered about half of our monthly hosting fees just with that group right now. So we're really excited about that, and hopefully that will encourage you all just to pitch in that dollar a month. Such a low level, but together as a group, that starts really to add up and, and help us to cover the costs of running the show. So we'd really love you to go on over to patreon.com slash podcast and visit us there. But for now, back to the script. Back to the script. 
This play is the result of a playwright-director collaboration, actually in the foreword of my copy of the script, or the preface, actually. It talks about some of the great playwright-director collaborations throughout history. That's a fun little bit you get to read if you if you purchase the, the, the copy of the script that I have. I don't know how many it exists in. Um, the, the one that you can buy for Kindle which I have that as well as the paper edition, also has that preface. So if you check it out, it's cool to read how Paula Vogel put the play together with director Rebecca Teichman. It was commissioned by two theaters at once. They shared the commission, Yale Repertory Theater. Of course, Yale Repertory Theater, huge deal, and actually appears in the show. To some, or, uh, The Providence Players appears in the show. And the, so Yale Repertory Theater was one of the two that did it, and then the Oregon Shakespeare Festival was the other place that commissioned the play. Its world premiere was a co-production between uh, Yale Repertory and La Jolla Playhouse in 2015. It premiered in New York off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theater. This production was directed by Rebecca Teichman. It transferred to Broadway, and that Broadway production was scheduled to have a filming of it. So supposedly PBS has a film of this play somewhere. And... That's it. You know, 2015 to 2019, it hasn't been around that long. Its life has mostly been in the off-Broadway and professional Broadway theater world. So there's not been a, a whole regional theater life for this script yet, although I'm, I'm hopeful and I imagine a, a powerful and and really provocative future for this show at the regional theater level because of how awesome the story is. Well, what, and that's so true because, like, one of the things that just happened in my brain as you were talking about it and talking about how recent it was, my brain went, "It's not recent. What are you talking about? This play is like really, really old." Like, it, 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 it strikes the. I'll get to it in the synopsis, but it strikes a moment of theater history. And because there's plays within plays within plays within this play, just just the thought that it's only two years old like threw my mind for a loop there for a second. So. But, the uh, the the script itself deals with this play within a play mentality. It's the story of the play Avenge, uh, the God of Vengeance, um, which is a play written by uh, Sholem Ash. Is how I'm going to say the name. Sholem Ash uh, was a playwright uh, in. Uh, Poland, I believe. <laughs> this 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 play has wide-reaching uh, themes, so I'm definitely going to have Jacob weigh in when I when I stray That's from right. the synopsis a little bit. That's right, and lots of different countries. So it, lots of countries, just all over the world. In fact, the setting at the beginning of the script says like Warsaw, Poland, and Connecticut, and everywhere yeah. in between. <laughs> everywhere in between, and it's true. Yeah, I mean, they go to Berlin at one point in this play. the The play though starts with uh, Sholem Ash. Um, pitching this play to his local theater gr- crew at Warsaw, and uh, and the the play is about <laughs> the book that was written, uh, which was the God of Vengeance, which is a story of uh, two women falling in love uh, in the context of a brothel, and uh, the the family who owns the brothel uh, is not on board with this. The one of the people who falls in love is the daughter of the owner of the brothel, and uh, he does not want her to fall in love with this prostitute in the in the brothel, and the whole family uh, kind of capitulates around that. So this is 1906 in Poland. And the, this playwright writes his play in Yiddish. He he's 
he says that he's creating this play because he wants to represent Jewish people on the stage. He's a Jew. He's surrounded by other Jews that feel that their life is not being represented in literature and especially on the stage. And this group that he initially brings the play to reacts very negatively because all the characters in the play whom are Jewish are brothel owners, prostitutes, and, you know, given the attitudes of the time, homosexuals. And so the idea is, well, this play is actually a disgrace to the Jewish community. When the playwright says, well, I wrote it because I wanted to display Jewish people as real people who have real flaws and and do hard things to each other. Right. Those two goals are an interesting beat in the play because the the uh, the Yiddish speaking community of theater artists in Warsaw is trying to, in the context of a culture that is against Jews, hold up Jews as kind of paragons or like show 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 the good side of Jewish culture. And uh, Sholem Ash comes in wanting to show the real side of Jewish culture that we don't need to just be paragons all the time. Um, we can we can show that we're real people too. So it's in that that tension is really interesting in the early part of the play, but he eventually takes it to Berlin and uh, performs the play there. And uh, that's where it starts to get legs. The play takes off. It has quite a bit of runs. It plays. There's there's a there's a, a series of scenes where it's just like over and over. Uh, it shows off where it is. I'm going to try to find it. One of the places it plays is Constantinople. One of the places it plays is uh, here we go. I got it. St. Petersburg and uh, Brats- <laughs> Bratislava, and uh, eventually it finds its way to New York. And of course, and that scene where it plays in all those different theaters all over Europe, we will come back to when we get to talking about the theatrical elements and how great the writing is because that scene's so awesome in the yeah. way that she wrote it. We won't do it now in the synopsis, but do not worry. We're coming Don't back. Don't worry. We're bookmarking all this stuff. Um, the, the bulk of the play, though, happens in New York um, when uh, the play is brought to New York and uh, the... The uh, there's a distinction between the downtown and uptown Broadway area. The play plays in downtown in at the German. Providence Players. That's that theater I mentioned at the beginning, where yep. Eugene O'Neill, of course, uh, premiered a lot of his plays. Uh huh. And the play plays in Yiddish in downtown, and then when it's picked up for uptown, it's translated into English. Now, when it's when it's translated into English, the translators know English better than Sholem Ash does, and Sholem Ash just like gives the play to them to do whatever he want, whatever they want with it. And what they do is make it more palatable for the uptown market by taking out the love. Uh, as a part of the the uh, lesbian relationship in this in the play, um, yeah, the, it, the the person that comes to tell the cast that all these changes are being made says basically that if it's going to play on Broadway, it cannot celebrate two women being in love. So the story is altered so that the lesbian relationship is much more negatively portrayed, as if yeah. one of them is just trying to get something out of the other, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- there's some consternation amongst the, the cast around it, but eventually it is uh, performed on Broadway, despite the fact that there are rewrites, people are still uh, arrested. There's a, this is, I mean, this is a true historical fact, too. Like, this is where the play plays with something that actually happened. The, the cast was, the whole cast was arrested um, and uh, arranged on, on charges of, like, indecency. Obscenity, yeah. It, it, yeah. The obscenity trial over this show. And, and that's actually where the play got started. In her preface, Paula Vogel talks about the fact that this play was conceived because Rebecca Teichman, and I just 
took a guess at the pronunciation of Rebecca Teichman's name because <laughs> Rebecca Teichman wanted she she had been doing for a while sort of uh, like found text productions just of the obscenity trial. She had found the 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 words that were actually said in the trial as well as letters, newspaper clippings and all this around the trial itself and she had been performing those as theater and then she approached Paula Vogel to turn it into a play. So that the obscenity trial over the showing of the play within the play on Broadway is a lot of where this play started. Yeah, and it wound up not being a huge, the, the beats of the trial wound up not being a huge part of the play, but they were the inspiration for the play, these these real events that happened. Um, the, the play, uh, they get bailed out to some degree, the the, the actors are not uh, lost to, to prison or anything, but they, they can't do the show anymore. The show is uh, pulled off of Broadway very quickly, and... Um, and, it, and the reason why is that so they, they get bailed out of jail and then there's the actual trial. We don't see the trial in the in the play. Maybe we should talk about that. I do want to come back to that. But the the, the important beat here that is shown in the play is that the pe- playwright, Sholem Ash, does not appear to defend the theater company performing his play in court. Instead, he simply writes a letter. And the play kind of takes the aim that his failure to appear in court is part of the reason why they're they're found guilty of, of obscenity, and so the play can no longer be performed. One of the characters, Lemel, the stage manager, who's a longtime friend of the playwright, saw the play in its initial reading, comes to Solomash's home and basically says, well, we're, we're all going back to Europe where we can perform this play freely. Well, what do we know about Europe for Jewish people in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s? Yeah, yeah. The long, the, the, the kind of ramble through history that we go on this play includes the start of Nazi Germany into the, the uh, yeah, into the Holocaust. And throughout that time frame, uh, Lem, Lemel, the stage manager, is kind of, we kind of follow Lemel through this play. Uh, some In some ways, this is par- partially his story. And when he goes back to uh, Germany and Poland, he is, he is still putting on this play. This play is super important to him. He's still getting people to do it. And he, he kind of uses it as an act of resistance while he's living in, in one of the ghettos. Yeah, this little group of Jewish actors that go back to Europe, they eventually end up in the Warsaw Ghetto and they're performing this play in secret. Six nights a week, they perform what they're allowed to perform, which is Jewish songs and skits and stories from Jewish history. But then that seventh night a week, they perform what the the authorities have told them they cannot do, which is this Yiddish theater. And so they perform the play. And, and this is all true from history. I mean, this is this is a real historical story of theater and the way it changed people's lives. Yeah, powerful theater. There's there's some beautiful moments, and we'll we'll talk about some of the really cool moments in this. But there is a really gorgeous uh, juxtaposition where you know you come out of this theater uh, doing this kind of tough work with this tough thematic material that is very integrated to the community, and then like a line from Oklahoma pr- plays, um, and it kind of shows the dichotomy between what Broadway is doing versus what this kind of theater can do. Like that's a huge part of this play. Um, just to wrap up synopsis before we keep getting excited about individual <laughs> elements because there's so many things to get excited about. Um, the play winds up wrapping wrapping up uh, with uh, with the uh, Ash family ending up having to move out of America. The Ashes moved to America before the play uh, debuted on Broadway, and they're ending up having to move again because they they have some affiliations with uh, with uh, communism. Yeah, the House uh, of American back. Activities. 
Yeah. So, so it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it's a wide reaching play, lots, lots of different themes, all well, I, kind of. I don't know, Jackson, you didn't say the end. So they're forced to move <laughs> to London. And the final beat of the play is that the ghosts, the dead, this dead theater troupe that used to be performing his play were lost to the Holocaust rises in the playwright's kitchen and they sort of re-perform mostly in movement the famous rain scene from God of Vengeance which has come under debate and scrutiny throughout the play it's the it's the scene that really humanizes this lesbian relationship for early early 1900s it's cut when it goes to Broadway and they bring it back when they perform it in all these attics and backroom shops in Europe and so this dead theater troupe performs the rain scene via movement and the playwright dances in the rain with Lemmel, this stage manager that we've been following. That's yeah. the final beat of the play. That's true. That that that's the that's the full retinal image at the end of the play. Um, I, I kind of want to jump into that moment because that's one of the big themes of this play is that the play starts and ends with dead theater troupe members. Um, the, the, the first moment of the play is Lemel kind of rising up from, uh, some rubble or something on the stage, some sort of obfuscation around him and kind of dusting himself off and welcoming us into the story. Kind of a six characters in search of an author kind of way, like, uh, some, some narrators above the story and then introduces the troupe who will then end up playing. There's only seven actors in this play. That's what I forgot to say at the beginning of the synopsis. There's only seven actors in this play and probably 20, 30 characters. And so this this theater troupe jumps in and begins telling this story uh, kind of from beyond the grave at the beginning of the play. Yeah, it says uh, this is the beginning stage direction. I'm skipping the description of lights and music. It goes on. Uh, A body stirs on stage. We see a dusty figure in an old suit. He stretches limbs that haven't moved in decades. He lifts one arm. Sawdust pours from his sleeve. He lifts the other (laughs) arm. More sawdust. He shakes his legs vigorously. More outpouring of sawdust. And then there's a description of the title that we should see projected or displayed somehow. From ashes they rise. The stage direction. The troop rises and shakes off dust. Yeah. And of course, we don't know exactly what that line is referring to at the beginning of the play necessarily. But by the end of the play, we know what it is because we watch the troop go to one of the gas chambers at in 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 one of the concentration camps by the end of the play. Right. And so, so late in the play, the, the title says ashes to ashes, the troop returns to dust. This is the title displayed as they're in the midst of the Holocaust. And then the the final image of this dead troop, just to relate it back to that stage direction at the beginning, is the ghost of Lemel stands in his way. Ash suddenly turns back into the room, and there is his empty living room, and it starts to rain. The dead troop rises to join him, watching from the ring, watching from the wings. The dead troop rises to join him. In the preface, yep. Paula Vogel describes the, the, the feeling of handing these cr- crazy, wild images to the director and basically saying, have fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm primarily a director, and I just I can't imagine the nervous joy of having a playwright hand you a page that says, 
the dead troop rises to join them. <laughs> and deciding what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 it provides such a field of imagination for for a director and for a production team to try to figure out how to justify some of these things. Like raining in the middle of the set alone. Throughout like, the show there's three, rain, right? Because this rain times. scene is played over and over at different times throughout the play and then cut and then brought back. Yep, yeah. No, it's 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 a fascinating play for like trying to pick out how to kind of weave this a, a little bit magical story. Like some of the elements of it are this this uh, eth- ethereal ghosts coming back to life to tell a story. Yeah, Paula Vogel took something that is, you know, a, a true historical story, theatricalizes it so that we can see it played many years over, you know, an hour and a half or whatever, and then chooses to layer on this additional magical realism or supernaturalism. What do you make of that, Jackson? Why do that? This is a true historical story. Why include ghosts rising from the dead? Hmm, that's a great question. I, I I mean, certainly you connect to some sort of uh, meta thing, <laughs> I guess. Like this meta storyteller um, is 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 kind of what you get the feeling of. As I mean, just I, I love the image of Lemel standing up from dust. Like a collapsed theater is what is in my mind. Like you see a theater. The the other thing is there's like suitcases all around the stage that the props all come out of. So whatever rubble he rises out of suddenly you're like oh there's this there's this thing happening and it's not normal he's dusting off something and then we jump into the story so this 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 i think what what it is is part part of it is this connection to something bigger some sort of uh cosmos or storyteller meta that you're jumping into but also to uh there is once once you figure out what the story is about there's a sadness that it brings to or a grief that it brings to once you figure out that all these characters are dead and you start to figure out why um, there, there's, there's a sadness. It's like, it's like watching a rogue one and realizing that all the characters in this movie are going to be dead by the time you get to the next movie. They can't possibly <laughs> be alive. It's, it's that kind of sadness. It, there's a sadness too, but I also wonder if this image of this ghostly theater troupe is also supposed to inspire a hope or a joy Part of what happens to the play within the play, God of Vengeance, is that it's supposed to have died. It's supposed to have been found guilty of this obscenity trial and killed, and instead it finds life and joy and meaning and purpose playing in attics and storerooms throughout the Jewish ghettos during the Holocaust. And it Mm. it actually was supposed to have died before that, too, right? The cuts. The actors describe these cuts and changes that are made before it has to play on Broadway as a sort of death for the the real play, the real Mm -hmm. meaning and movement and moments of the play that actually are about something more than just showing that lesbians are bad, you know, the the version that eventually plays on Broadway. This true hope. Lemel, the stage manager, has some really beautiful descriptions of how in in the original version of the play, this love between women is human and pure and beautiful and not wrong. And it it's killed when it transfers to Broadway. It's supposed to have died, but it mm-hmm. comes back to life. 
And so, so maybe this image of this dead troop is also supposed to be hopeful for us that it's, it's still alive. This story, yeah. this movement of theater as, as something beautiful that represents the best parts of us, even while showing some of the worst parts of us, uh, you know, abuse and, 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 and sexism and, and all this kinds of stuff. While showing that, theater can also bring out the best parts of us and that this deadly, this, this ghostly troop is maybe supposed to show us that that lives on somehow. I like that a lot because it. I mean, the the play is all about the durability of this play from from the beginning, even before that. The, these death moments of the play, it escapes death in the early parts of the play. There is at least three times where people tell people tell other characters to burn the play. Um, like don't don't do the the first scene that uh, Sholomash brings it to his like theater group in Warsaw. Um, they tell him you should burn this. Like don't don't ever approach this script again. Don't try this script anymore. So. Uh, so so yeah, it, it absolutely. Uh, I like I like that through line of we're 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 working or we're we're seeing the play work through all these difficulties and still come out with with this 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 story of humanity that is still so vibrant despite the difficulties it goes through. I think there's another layer to this deadly this uh, ghostly. I see, keep keep saying deadly, but that's not the word I mean. Ghostly troop. Um, after Ash has ref- the playwright has refused to appear in court, and Lemel, the stage manager, goes to visit him, they have this sort of exchange where Ash says, "It's my play. I can have. I can allow them to make the changes they want. I can have it be produced or not produced as I want. It's my play." And Lemel says, "Excuse me, but the play belongs to the people who labor in it and the audience who put aside the time to be there in person. You know, the ghostly troupe is the play." And they come Hmm. back at the beginning of the play to tell us the story of the play and at the end of the play to re-put on the the most beautiful moments of the play itself. The Mm -hmm. the play God of Vengeance has totally escaped the control of playwright Ash. It's moved into something absolutely beyond him, which includes ghosts and life after death. And there's a beautiful grace in that moment, too, because Sholomash abandons all these people pretty much. Like, he doesn't show up for them at court. He he's he kind of hides in his Staten Island place and is writing novels instead of plays. He kind of leaves it aside. But still, despite of that, the ghosts come back and, and show him that this play is living on without his help, basically, beyond his help. And, and the ghost of Lemel invites him into it still. At the end of the play, he invites him into the dance in the rain at the end of the play. So it's a it's a redemptive moment as well. That kind of this 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 uh, supernatural grace that these ghosts show to uh, Sholem at the end of the play. You're right to bring in that moment, especially in the way that I described it, because that is how the play ends. It's not, as I described, where Ash realizes it's totally beyond him. He's invited back into the life of the play going forward. One more comparative image about this ghostly troop, and then we'll move on to other cool things. Several times throughout the play, the play within the play, God of Vengeance, is referred to as a stone. It's a stone, as in it's it's dead, it's sinking, it's going to drag you down. And that is what happens to the careers of some of the actors who choose to perform in it on Broadway. But I love the discrepancy between the description of the play as a stone and these ghosts coming back to perform the play. You know, something so alive. That's what I'm yeah. saying, that maybe it's not only about being sad. Maybe the ghosts are the life of the play. 
And so, you know, it's not a stone. Stones don't have lives. Stones don't come back to life. Stones are stones. But this play has such a life, it's so not a stone that the life continues after life. Yeah, I wonder if 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 you know my 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 comment about sad is a past looking uh, sad like what was, but but I think what you're describing is kind of a legacy of this play, this this thing that will continue to live on past past what everyone involved in the play itself or in the temp- the temporal moment of the play uh, could have ever seen that it could do. Really, maybe what you're describing is the difference between like how Mary Zimmerman's play Arabian Nights ends and how Indecent ends. Arabian Nights ends with the storytellers and the story fading away to dust and blowing away in the winds and warfare of that part of the world right now, whereas Indecent ends with that dust coming back to life and continually telling the story into today. Yeah, that's that's a good distinction. I like that. Yep. So then, so so what's 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 next to the fun things? There's like projections is on the list. Certainly, projections throughout the play play a huge role in in kind of guiding us through this this play. Um, it sets us in place. It gives us translations of Yiddish. The play is filled with Yiddish. Um, let's and, let's uh, talk about that. The way that Paulo Vogel has written the Yiddish. So. A very common playwriting technique, right, is is that when characters are supposed to speak a foreign language, but the audience is supposed to understand, those characters just speak in English or whatever language the audience needs to understand fluently. And then um, oftentimes when they're supposed to be native speakers of a different language speaking English, they speak sort of broken, accented English. So that does appear in this play as well. So when the characters are speaking in Yiddish, they speak perfect, fluent, brilliant English. When they're supposed to be speaking in English, they speak in English with a Yiddish accent and and, and having a hard time with the language in some of the characters' cases who aren't as, as good at speaking English. Um, there's so much of it in this play, though, that Paul Vogel adds this extra layer of the titles in Yiddish and in English. Yeah, yeah, and 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 what it does is it kind of adds the weight of, uh, you know, an, another subplot in this is you know Yiddish theater and people trying to write theater for uh, Yiddish speaking communities for the Jewish community and 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 how important it is for some of these actors. You during while you were talking about the stone, you talked about some of the uh, the actors that are in this play's careers are kind of wrecked around them, and one of them is 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 like a rising star. There's Rudolf Schildkraut. Who uh, is the the star in in the star system of theater? He's the star that brings this play to life in Berlin, um, and his career is completely wrecked. And there's a moment where he says, "I could have been in any number of plays on Broadway. I would have gotten to Broadway, and I chose this play because it's uh, for at least significantly a portion of it is because it's in Yiddish. That's a huge theme of this play is trying to make theater for a specific community that treats that community well." And what a specific community has to do to be accepted by the broader, more, you know, more pervasive community. So when part of the story, especially of the middle part of the play, is what happens to these Jewish people who move to America and want to have any kind of success. So they, a lot of them have to have their names changed. Lemel, the stage manager, has to go by Lou when he's in America. Uh, the, the people of this Jewish company from Europe who come over to America who can't rid themselves of their Jewish accents or their European accents when they're performing the English 
translation of the play, just have to be fired because that's not going to work in wealthy white America. There's a whole song around that, and we haven't like talked about the songs of this play yet, but this play is interspersed with uh, kind of small musical numbers, and the song that they sing when they come to Ellis Island is all about that. It's like, you can't wear what you used to wear anymore, we have to change our names, we have to change our appearance, but hey, it's America. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So those those changes are are uh, yeah you you get to watch this troupe go through what it what kind of change it takes to appear presentable to uptown Broadway and of course Paula Vogel's done such a good job pairing that view of you know what these Jewish people have to lose to find a modicum of success in an, in an, in this more broader pervasive culture alongside the story of what the play supposedly had to lose to go on and gain success in Broadway the mark of course of well, at least one of the marks of brilliant playwriting is finding those dual paths where you watch the characters go through something and then other there's a there's another transformation that mirrors it symbolically so the plays what it has to give up what the people have to give up and then what they rediscover when they go back to Europe and are able to perform the play as they want to. Yeah, it returns to the big themes and those themes are Paulette Vogels does just a great job at kind of cementing those themes in for us by replaying I think just two really scenes from the the play within the play over and over. We see the scenes in different languages and, and, and staged a little bit differently uh, throughout the play um, to the point that like we're familiar even with, with the way the play ends. The play within the play ends by the end of the play. <laughs> yeah, oh, from, gosh, I feel like I could probably perform the play within the play's last scene from memory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. used so many times throughout the play, including, and now finally to return to what we teased at the beginning during the synopsis, this brilliant, crazy moment. After the play has done so well in Berlin, it travels all over Europe. And so how they do it is they play two lines from the play over and over and over in conjunction with title changes. So it'll say the year and the the city and the theater of where the, the play is being performed now. That'll appear as a title. You Probably projections nowadays, but could be title cards, I guess. Um, so that appears as a title, and then the two lines are played over. And then it appears as a title, and the two lines are played over. And the title, two lines are played over and over and over and over. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great scene, and you get the sense you get the at least in the reading of it, you get the uh, the kind of flash forward style that 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 it's shooting for of like you know it's it's like a montage in a film, like something that only film film you you think that only film can do is this like you're you're going to different places really quickly back and forth. This play accomplishes with those kind of blink the 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 stage direction in mind is a blink in time. Um, as part of the projection. So let's, it's your, let's jump past Blink in Time and come back to it because I think Blink in Time is maybe its own thing that we sure. should talk about her use of the phrase of Blink in Time. But I, I want to talk about this jumping forward repetition, uh, flash forward as you call it, where it plays at all these different theaters. Do you think... I assume there is a purpose. Let me say this. I assume there's a purpose to why Paula Vogel chooses these two lines to repeat over and over from God of Vengeance. She could have chosen any moment of God of Vengeance to play over and over, but she chooses these two lines. This is the the, the 
terrible father in the play within the play has discovered that his daughter is in this lesbian relationship. He's decided that she and her lesbian partner are going to have to become whores in his whorehouse, prostitutes, in order to pay back the pain they've caused him. So the very end of the play, the mother yells, help, he's going crazy. And the father yells, and take the holy scroll with you. I don't need it anymore. Those are the two lines played over and over. Why those two, do you think? Um, well, there, there's the shallow answer, which is it's the end of the play. So you, you include the applause at the end of the play and you get the sense that, you know, the show is doing well uh, by the applause. Um, because because the show finishes, the lights dim and you hear the applause of the people in, in whatever city that they're in. Um, this moment of the play is a, is a moment of some contention early on in the play because uh, it's a beat where uh, the father throws the, tor- the Torah on, onto the ground. And some of the some of the people are uncomfortable with with uh, him throwing throwing the scriptures on the ground in this scene and think it goes against some of the community shows them in a bad light. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, this moment is debate is hotly contested during the initial reading of the script. So it's a moment that we're all familiar with. And it's the end of the play. I think you're definitely right. There's a practical reason. You get the applause. You get the end moment of the show. But hear this there might have been an argument for paula vogel to play the rain scene or two lines from the rain scene over and over because this is still during the run of the show where the rain scene gets to be played it it, that might have emphasized that scene which then is cut from the script when it goes to broadway so why choose this moment where the father rejects the daughter's and you know throws away the holy scroll over an equally symbolic important talked about moment in this famous rain scene. Hmm. That's a good I mean a good question. I'm not uh I I'm I'm I too kind of felt that that like I feel like the rain scene has a payoff later on in the play. Um and 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 would would have some through line there, but I think perhaps what this scene does is uh show what people thought was offensive in a different culture. Um, that uh, when it when it comes to America, the offensive stuff is the uh, to 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 the Broadway audience is this lesbian couple and 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 showing the humanity of them and showing their love for each other. What the offensive thing in in the Jewish communities in Europe is the throwing of the Torah on the ground. It doesn't seem to be an issue at all. That that you know the 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 love between these two women doesn't seem to be the problem that the play is facing in Europe. Well, I'll push back on you a little bit about that because in the initial reading, the men do show some disgust for the the way the lesbian That's relationship true, yeah. is portrayed. But you're right. The bigger concern in the Jewish communities is the treatment of the Torah. And I love that answer. I don't really have a good answer. I, I Both, <laughs> I think, have worked uh, equally well. Uh, one of my thoughts might be that the uh, the way that the father discards the Torah, there, there might be some symbolism there in what the characters have to do to keep this show alive and discarding some of their Jewish identities going forward. There might be some symbolic relationship uh, between what happens there and what happens at the end of the play. It also might just be that help, he's going crazy and ending with I don't need it anymore are two pretty powerful lines to play just right after another. It's an image that is easy to play over and over. I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I I agree that the the image is is powerful. Like the uh, us us kind of tapping around, throwing the rain scene in there is just kind of us tapping. Like the scene works great. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's have, no criticism of Paula yeah. Vogel. <laughs> <laughs> Choosing that scene was great. It worked yeah. wonderful. I was just interested. The rain scene might have also worked in that moment, and, mm-hmm. and and so it's interesting to see. So let's go back to a blink in time. Talk about that yeah. stage direction, and it's actually a title. It's not just a stage direction. It's one of the titles. Yeah, it's a title for the projection. So at least in my reading of it, I would say that the audience sees a blink in time um, on the on the projection. And uh, yeah, it 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 takes you through through each of these flash forwards or different beats. I think, and and I'd, I'd have to read it again and look intentionally to be sure. I don't know that it repeats in any other place besides this one spot in the play. Is that true of your reading as well, Jacob? Uh, do you mean that it repeats over and over, or it's not used? It's used throughout the script. Throughout the play, um, I, oftentimes as I'm paging, yeah. in conjunction with the playing of the play within the play. Uh, for example, it's for they'll they'll start reading the play like in the reading scene at the beginning. They'll start reading the play and it'll blink in time. It'll say a blink in time and suddenly they're reading the middle of the play. A blink in time. Suddenly they're reading the end of the play. So that is used throughout. Yeah. Yep. So what, so the the other, I'll, I'll read you another, or I'll set up another moment where Blinkin' Time is used, and I think it can inform some of what it's doing. The other time that it's used is in the Lodz ghetto in Poland, uh, in, and is the uh, the scene where they're doing the, the scene from the play in in the attic of one of, of one of the houses in the ghetto, and uh, there's there's the intro where everyone is kind of gathering together. Lemel is gathering people together to start the play. Places for Act Two, he says, and then we see a blink in time, and he steps into the light and introduces the play. So that's 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 uh, at least one other instance of how it's used beyond just flashing us to different cities around Europe. And with that, there's kind of. There, there's a, I guess maybe almost a mantle being put on in that moment. Some sort of assumption of something. What do you, what do you think? Is that what, what, um, what is it? It leading us towards as we see a blink in time. Well, there. First of all, there's just a practical use of that, right? Which is that the play covers 1906 into the 40s and beyond into the afterlife of this play. Right. So there's a lot of time to cover in whatever 90 minutes, two hours, and so using this particular device to say over and over a blink in time helps the audience to understand the movement of time that that we're not following. We we do follow things chronologically for the most part, but we do not follow them. Uh, you know, each scene might be years apart. It might be minutes apart. It doesn't matter. So because a blink in time is fairly vague, it communicates that any amount of time might have passed. And unless there's a title to suggest that you're in a different year or location, you might assume that you're in the same year or location, but that might not always be a safe assumption. So a blink in time is a great way to communicate some amount of time passes, but we're not sure how much time passes. But that also carries some symbolic significance to what goes on in the play, right? Because time passes, and it's it's not clear how much time passes, right? We've talked about the way that these ghostly actors communicate this after and existing life of the play and its story and its themes, a blink in time. We were yeah. in the 1940s, a blink in time. Suddenly, we're here in 2019. Yeah, it kind of speaks into the uh, the almost like crisscrossing or frazzled nature of memory and how how when you're recalling things 
Like you, you kind of are stepping into these moments uh, from from outside of time into time. Um, and and so so I, I agree that these like these moments show for us like a a new beat, a new entry point into this story, a new way to engage with the through line of the story, not necessarily having gone on that through line ourselves. Now. If you are a student of theater or someone who's been around theater for a lot, uh, for a long time, here's some things that you've heard us say. The show has musical interludes. The show has a limited number of actors who change costume on stage and play many different parts and move set pieces around. The show has titles that are displayed throughout. And again, if you're a theater person, you might be thinking... It's Brechtian. There's it's so Brecht. many Brechtian elements in this show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's. Uh, I, I was. I was kind of excited. You know, theater. Theater from. Theater from a uh, kind of Germanic region has a lot of influence around Brecht. So it, w- it was cool to see Paula Vogel kind of pay homage to that. Um, though she's, I mean, I don't, I don't know that she's necessarily a, a, a Brechtian type playwright. She used Brechtian techniques in a lot of this play to and, get, and to she get across did the in How I Learned to Drive. I don't remember whether we specifically talked about the Brechtian influence, but How I Learned to Drive has a similar alienating weird set pieces and lights and titles and narration yeah. and, and things like that. So it appears there, but heavily here. Yeah. And I think it serves the play well because we're being introduced to something kind of outside of our realm of experience. I certainly didn't know this play very well or the, the story of this play very well before I started reading the script. And and so so you need some sometimes to have this kind of alienating effect for you to step back and go, what did I learn? How am I here? And in this, you know, sitting and listening to a three minute song. um, <laughs> It can can bring that across. It lets you kind of stack your information and then re-engage your mind to what the play is doing and moving forward into. Yeah, and of course, when Brecht uses these alienating techniques, his goal is to remind us that we're an audience and that we have a higher level of participation than just sort of blindly smiling through a fun story. Right. right? We have we have some level of engagement where we're supposed to understand, take some things with us. Brecht was hoping for some political change as a result of the theater he was putting on. And and this play is a great candidate for why the theater of alienation is important because this isn't just a feel-good or feel-bad story. It's not just cathartic. If you just cry at the end of this play and walk away and don't have any grasp of some of what Vogel's trying to tell us about the power of theater itself, the power of story stories that represent communities, the way that our communities can tell stories and get life out of them. If you don't take any of that with you, you've really missed the boat on this show. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's not, it's not, I don't know if it's like specifically stated as like a mission. There's not a moment where Lemel comes out and says those things, but it's the through line of the show. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's the struggle between like plays trying to succeed to Broadway, but being written for really specific groups of people <laughs> and, and the power that it can have when a play serves that specific group of people and, and how that power gets stripped away to some degree um, when, when applied to the Broadway machine or to the you know to the mass mass acceptability machine that is that is entertainment f- and and smiling through a play going to entertain going to plays just to be entertained and not to be instructed in some way 
Right. And and applying that same thought to beyond Broadway, too, to just generally culture. We talked a little bit already about how Paul Vogel is commenting on the way that, in this case, Jewish immigrants, but of course, many or all immigrants have to divorce themselves from some of their identity to be able to homogenize into this, you know, crazy, pervasive American culture. And so if if this play is just sad or just happy and there's none of this higher level commentary on storytelling, on representation, on homogenization, on immigration, on the, some of the attitudes which led to the Holocaust, right? I mean, some of what the characters talk about, very, especially very early in the play, is just anti-Semitism, is just yeah. like, are your parents going to be shocked that you're playing a Jewish person in a Jewish company? Are they going to be offended? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's amazing how much is packed into this play. I mean, rewind, you know, 30 seconds and listen to that list that Jacob just read off of the different themes that are in this play. There's so many. And it's and 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 when you show up, when you engage, uh, though, through it, through uh, through some alienation techniques, you're going to come away with a lot from this play. It's very different from like, you know, last week we did Sam Shepard's uh, Buried Child, which you come away from that experience going like, wow, this family, ugh. Like, <laughs> like it's a specific emotion. It's a powerful, powerful emotion. But, but it's a, powerful because of its immersiveness. Yeah. Yep. This one like opens you up to a huge array of experience from a people group and, and, and the, the varying, uh, the varying issues and problems of those people across many years, many themes, many topics, and across and and, and specifically within within the world of theater addressing those topics. So we talked about how the play began out of these performances of the obscenity trial of God of Vengeance. So God of Vengeance plays on Broadway. The police come and arrest the whole company, charge him with obscenity for showing this lesbian couple on stage. For sh- I, and It's not showing prostitutes. In fact, the cast actually comments on that. that right. like mom, Mommy and Daddy Smith, who bring their kids, the most they can handle is prostitutes on stage. <laughs> if you throw lesbianism in there, it just goes crazy. Right. <laughs> so that's where the obscenity trial comes from. And, and the play was born out of this director uh, performing pieces of the obscenity trial. And then in Paul Vogel's version of the play, the obscenity trial does not appear in any form other than just the one we read, we just hear about Ash giving the playwright, giving a letter to the to the courtroom, and then we hear the decision read. There is no trial in this play. Uh, Paula Vogel's preface, she talks about sort of, she doesn't give a lot into why it doesn't, other than just to say it didn't really fit with the play that they were doing. Why not, Jackson? Why not? Why not include the trial? Well, I, I think I, th- I think because this is the story about the people who did the play. <laughs> Um, and the trial does not encapsulate their story. I mean, it, it encapsulates uh, a, a moment in theater history, a, a sad one, a bad one, um, and and that would be an interesting play. But I think as she was, what I get from the the preface and from the way she's engaged this subject matter was that she found that the the story of these people was so much more. Uh, was was what drew her into it. What 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 we wanted to spend time on was these people who dedicated their entire lives, their career, and and I'll, I'll reiterate with different meaning their their full lives. Like they they died <laughs> to some degree because they wanted to keep doing this play. 
um, and doing it the way that they they appreciated the themes around it. So so that is what she's been able to lean into by not kind of distracting us with uh, court proceedings, though that would be an interesting play as well. That's right. I mean, when you're te- when you're putting on, when you're writing a script for devising a piece of real history, there just are things that you have to leave out. And so Paula Vogel selected and observed this story thread of Lemel and the company and the, you know, the quote unquote true meaning of Christmas, the true meaning (laughs) of the play that they carry with them that gets corrupted as part of its playing in America, especially in rich white America on Broadway, and that they take back with them and rekindle in Jewish ghettos in Europe. And, And in that story, the trial itself is only important in its verdict. You know, I I love devised theater. I love found pieces, and I would love to see this director's production of the trial itself. But for the purposes of this story, I'm watching a, a, a larger, a different tale. And in that tale, to see every minute of the trial is just not that important. All you need to know is how it turned out. Right, right. You don't want it to turn into like a crucible moment. Like that's a, that's a whole other play. The crucible is a great play, but uh, th- th- you wouldn't have been able to focus on these people's stories as closely if if we had switched to to yeah a, a court trial and and focused on that. So I think that's and, part and actually, of it. Actually, I, I think the crucible is a nice thing to bring in here because in the crucible, the trial is the story, and we gain insight into all of the different characters who are involved in the trial, learn all of the motivations that surround the trial, and then see those motivations, those goals, those tactics come to cross purposes and bang against each other, and then see the aftermath. In this story, we're not so immersed into like who's the plaintiff in the trial what are the evidences uh what are the different motivations of the different jurors and sure, what does the sure. judge think about all that that's not the story we're watching this this group of this troop of uh of actors this company and for their purposes we just need to know that they were found guilty and that they were driven out of america or or elected to return to europe and perform it there right while we're on the like the focus on these people and their story, there's an interesting beat in this play, and I'm wondering. I, I'd like to get your thoughts on it as we're we're getting close to the end of our time, and of course we're going to run out of time to talk about all the things we want to talk about. No, <laughs> we <What>? are shocking. <laughs> Every week we talk about everything that could ever be talked about with us. Right, we just completely sum up the play. Uh, <laughs> there's a beat in when the when the troop is in. The U.S. doing the play about to switch to the English version and they need to fire um, one of their actors. We kind of alluded to that before and and bring in someone new. This is an interesting moment in the play because it's around the uh, two characters who have been playing the two characters who fall in love in the play. And uh, in, in, in there's, there's kind of this moment where the themes of the play within the play become the themes of the real life people in the play. Um, and and that, that kind of is an interesting beat thematically for us. We, we re-engage in the story differently because we see it playing itself out in the, in the characters of the story. What are your thoughts around that, that use kind of shifting the storytelling to a real life moment in that, in, in that part of the play? Yeah. So what is happening is the two actresses that are playing the lesbian couple in the play within the play in God of Vengeance, this daughter and this prostitute who fall in love, that the, the actresses playing them 
are also a couple. They are also in real life in love. And I, I, I don't know. I would assume this is a true historical fact that Paula Vogel gleaned from letters and stories about the initial productions of this play. But I think it, it pays off so well in this moment when the one of them is fired because she just can't speak the English well enough, the English translation. So as Jackson said, she's fired in favor of someone who speaks English. And um, she says... She's sort of pining and grieving over losing this role, and not just because she's an actress losing a role. In fact, I think she says she'll probably find other work. Um, and actually, the person who fires her says, you can you can play in Yiddish theater for the rest of your life. You're a brilliant actress. So it's not so much about that, but she says this was one of the first and only times I've, I've, ever, I've ever been able to stand on stage and tell the person I love that I love them. Yeah. Yeah, so that 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 at least for me that really kind of it takes it it moves us from from uh, a play that's fighting for an abstract idea to a play that is personally relative to a character in 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 our perception of real life. Like if if the the real life of the play is just the play, it moves it out of the play within the play into the real sphere, into like this is this is this is this theme is touching the characters that we have come to love and 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 makes it and a little course, bit more personal. It continues too, right? Because the actress that they bring in to replace her is herself dealing with the fact that she also is attracted to women and has that that is not going to work in her society. She is going to be rejected and abhorred for it. And so she finds in playing this lesbian woman some freedom to allow herself to experience those those feelings. In, in, there's a beautiful moment in their for their opening night with this new actress and they play the scene where these two women find these two characters in the play within the play finally come together are in, in love and this young woman the moment is so impactful for her as she's struggling with her feelings for other women that she she runs off the stage and she says something beautiful and, and it's something to the effect of I never want to stop acting yeah or I never want to stop being in theater I mean it's it's a beautiful testament to the way that actors and stories bleed in to the true life it's it's quite remarkable and of course it really represents that that deeper moving theme through the whole of the script the life that our stories have and the power of representation yeah this 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 play is not a uh is not a like a fully uh, direct love letter to theater it's more like completely steeped in love for theater like just being around it, you have this aura of like, gosh, theater can be so cool, <laughs> and 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 it can and there's things that about it that are awful. There are things about it that are that are abusive, but but also theater can be so cool, <laughs> and and especially the kind of theater that comes from need, right? There at one point, I think the the playwright of the play within the play says something like, "I've I've grown so sick of theater where you just found a theater company because you want to, and you're not even worried about where you're going to live, and you're not even worried about losing audience members because of your materials." And and that theater that comes out of need and representation, and uh, th that has a, a the play Paul Vogel at least says that that theater has a certain kind of power, totally different and foreign to the power of. The Broadway. Right. 
the, the theater that R- Mr. and Mrs. Rich Smith want to bring their children to. Right, and th- that won't walk out during the intermission from... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's all the time we've got, and, uh, you know, there's more to talk about, of course. More to talk about, as always, which is great, because it allows us to extend the conversation to you. If there is more that you would like to talk about uh, from our conversation on Indecent, the play by Paula Vogel, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We have usernames, or all the usernames are at Podcast on all of those platforms. We also have a Gmail, Podcast at gmail.com. If you want to add anything to the conversation from having read the play, just listen to the conversation, uh, or been in the play. Like, that'd be cool. Tell us what, what it was like to be in this play as well. Any of those things, we'd love to keep having this conversation with you. Find us on any of those sites. We'll keep talking to you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please tell people about them. You can share them on your social media. You can just tell your friends. We believe that you know other people that like drama, like scripts, like theater, just like stories. Tell them about it. They can find the podcast on Podbean, where we're hosted, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. There's a link to the new episode posted every Monday on Facebook. So, until next week when we're coming at you with another play, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week on No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.